If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for the next three weeks, and I have to tell you that uh, I love that we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for the next three weeks, because 1 Corinthians 15 is a, just a glorious, glorious passage of Scripture that is focused on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is everything. Um, so, we're just, uh, it's going to be great to be able to spend three weeks in this chapter unpacking this, this treatment of, of the resurrection from, from Paul's letters. Um, so, we're going to dig into that now uh, and talk about just the way that Paul sets this up as we prepare to come to the Lord's table today. And it really is an amazing thing. I have what's called a Facebook page, perhaps. You've heard of this. It's this thing on the internet where you make friends and you find old friends and you say things to each other generally, but not specifically. And you show pictures of yourself, but you select which pictures of yourself you show people and you create for yourself a profile, uh, which is how the world then comes to know you. Uh, that's how Facebook works, in case you're interested. That sounds, that sounds good. This week, this thread came up. Uh, you know you're from Tipton, Indiana, if you remember, dot, dot, dot. And that's my hometown, a little hometown. And, uh, and, I, and I saw this come by, and I started reading. And uh, have any of you seen these with your own hometown? And is this something that's happening right now on, on Facebook, or is just Tipton lucky? Um, I, I, there must be like over a thousand little, just little tidbits of, of remembering my hometown. And it was amazing. It's just been an amazing week to read through these little comments that people are making and to, just to remember what it was like to be a boy growing up in my hometown and, and just the way that my, my town was, was, was um, you know, it was a small farming community um, uh, built on industry, not, not, not a wealthy town by any stretch, didn't, very mom and popish, all the shops and everything. And so, and so places were known by the personalities of the people who ran them. You know, that's how you knew places. So we had a McDonald's and a Pizza Hut, and every other restaurant in town was, was its own thing, uh, not a chain. And so just really an amazing thing to think through uh, of these memories and these places that are getting brought up. Uh, and, you know, just remembering, like, the summer at the pool. Every, every day I would go to the pool and swim there. I had a season pass and people talking about that and people who ran those places and, and uh, you know, where people would cruise up and down the strip and kind of how everybody would do the same thing. And it was, it was really awesome to, to just bathe in these memories, this flood of memories. Um, and it got me thinking about nostalgia, really. Why, why do I like this so much? Why can I not stop reading these, these memories of this place where I'm from? And I think part of the reason, I don't want to be too jaded because I love the memories that I have from my hometown, but part of what I was enjoying, I think, from this Facebook stream of comments was how selectively positive the memories were, you know? All the things that were listed were great, you know? They were, they were charming, or they were funny, or they were odd in the way that made you feel kind of a pride in being a part of that, that hometown. You know, we had this festival called the Pork Festival, which celebrated 
you know, pigs. Um, it had a beauty contest. Uh, not kidding. And if you won, you were Miss Pork Cuisine. And that, and that was, that was like, I know, it's hilarious. It's, it's, and, and it was like, you know, we compete for, I want to be Miss Pork Cuisine this year. Um, anyway, I'm going on about this to say that I think that there's something in me, and I believe that that's, if it's in me, it's probably in you, that uh, when we remember, we tend to remember selectively about where we're from and the experiences that we've had. And we do this because there's something in us that wants to edit the past. Uh, I didn't think at all this week, really, until just recently about these comments of junior high teachers. I didn't think about how lost I felt in junior high when I was reading that. But in reflecting on it, you know, just thinking back, yeah, this, there were these great places, but then there were also these places where I was just sort of adrift in this sea of confusion in my hometown, and I didn't know what was going on. And so I remember, I remember in this way where my mind is, is editing. And, and what is it in us that does that? Why do we want to edit the past? Why do we want to massage the way that we remember? remember things so that we remember them well. And I think part of it for me, and I suspect for you, is I'm trying to understand how I change. How, how, how can I rest assured now that I'm not who I was? How can I remember the past in a way that sets me at ease, that I've, I've graduated from my past, that I, I, I don't have to, that's not who I am anymore? And what that does when we do that is we put really kind of the, 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 the central importance of growth and change on ourselves, on me. I, I, I'm the most important person in the story of my life evolving and changing and growing. And scripture says, if you're a believer, that's not how it, how it works. You're not the one who fundamentally changes you. Paul's writing to these believers in Corinth. We've talked about this for a long time now in this, in this series, but one of the things that we do well to remember is that these are first-generation Christians, these Corinthian believers. Paul came, he brought the gospel to them. The gospel had never been to Corinth before. Nobody had ever heard it. People believed. The church grew. And now they're trying to figure out how, what does it look like to do life together. And one of the things that we've seen throughout this book is that these people, like us, have, have really been driven by this compulsion to establish their sense of worth through editing their stories as they relate to other people, trying to figure out, am I better than you, or am I somewhere behind you, or how do I find myself in importance and in value in this church? And so they would compare themselves to each other, and they would tear each other down, and they would be divided over who had money and who didn't have money, and who followed which teacher, and and all these things, trying to figure out, okay, where do I fit in this story? And Paul's been writing this letter, correcting and correcting and correcting all the ways that they've been doing this. And now he comes to 1 Corinthians 15, and it's like he just sort of clears the screen, and he says, all right, with all that said, let me tell you what matters. What is the most important thing? And the most important thing, he tells them, is that Christ has died and has risen from the grave to atone for your sins. That is the most powerful force at work in your life. It's the most uh, 
it's the unedited reality of who we are in our relationship with the Lord. And Paul is now launching into this explanation to say this. But he has these things to overcome in these people because they're trying to protect. They're trying to guard. They're trying to put up fences and walls that would say, all right, I want to hear your teaching, but I also want to establish myself in this light to where, to where there aren't weak spots in me. And it made me think about uh, John Newton, uh, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, an amazing pastor, thinker, was, was said to be a man who was, was, uh, had this contagious joy about him as a Christian, that he, that he loved the life that the Lord had given him. But the other thing about John Newton, though, is that before the Amazing Grace and the pastor John Newton and the, 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 the lyricist and the one who was captured with, with the life and the beauty of the gospel, he was a slave trader. He was, and, and by his own account, um, a horrible man. He, he was brutal. Uh, he, he devalued life exceedingly. He profited from people's suffering. And this was a part of his story. And it's a part of his story that we know to this day. And he made this statement once when he was talking about himself in light of what the gospel has done. And he says this. He says, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, and nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. But I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is a man in process. But it makes me ask this question. What if on that Facebook page, on the Facebook page of your life, what if, like John Newton, like the darkest moments of your past, the seediest experiences that you've ever been involved with, the most horrific things that you've ever done, what if those were just common knowledge to people? What if people knew that about you? What if you walked in this room, everybody turned around and looked at you, and they knew the worst thing that you had ever done, and you knew that everybody knew? Is that scary to you? Let me ask you kind of the other side of the coin question to that. Is the prospect of that in any way liberating, that thought? What if you didn't have to hide that? What if you didn't have to cover up, yeah, this is... (laughs) This is my colossal failure. This is the place where I've just really, really, really blown it. Are you tired? Are you tired of managing your image? Are you tired of trying to hold together some sort of picture of yourself that would make people look at you through the edited history that you're presenting and say, everything about you I like? Are any of you just tired of that? Is it wearing you out? Hear what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Beautiful text to prepare us to come to the Lord's table. He says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve. 
And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul is preparing to unpack the details of the resurrection, the implication, the import, the application of the resurrection. But he starts here with this, saying, this message is the message that I preached. When he came to Corinth, he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And that's what he's done. He's proclaimed the gospel, the message, the central heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is that Christ has died was buried, was risen from the grave to atone for our sins, and now lives through the evidence of appearing to other people. And he's establishing something. And what he's establishing, and this is what we're going to unpack, is that for you, the most important factor in your life being transformed by the gospel is not first a transaction that happens between you and Jesus but it is a transaction that happens between Jesus and the Father. The power of the gospel at work in your life to change you, you are so far more passive in that than you think. That Christ is at work in you, but the power of the gospel to change you didn't originate with you. It originated in a transaction between the Son and the Father on the cross. And that's what he's saying here. And I want, I want us to see it, just to see some of these simple truths of the gospel that Paul is expressing. Things that he's saying, this is what's true about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel. The first is this. I'm going to give us uh, six of them. If that scares you, I'm going to give us six of them rather quickly. Uh, <laughs> but the first is, is that the gospel is Christ-centered. That of first importance is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. The message that Paul brought to these people was not a self-help gospel. It wasn't a gospel of them bettering themselves. It was a message where the first importance was that Christ died for our sins. It was what he did. So Christianity isn't just a bland collection of spiritual ideas and, and guidance for you know chicken soup for your spiritual soul. It's supremely centered on the work of Christ on the cross, and after the cross, rising from the grave. It's easy to think that faith is a personal thing, which it is. That's the second point. Faith is a personal thing. But sometimes what we think of when we think that faith is a personal thing is we think that that means that it's a a, a private thing. And what Paul is saying, no, the first important thing about the gospel is that Christ has died and has risen from the dead and that this was for those who would believe. So it doesn't start with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not primarily start with you. It's Christ-centered. But it is personal. Number two, the gospel is personal. And he says it this way. He said, uh, I delivered, you received what you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. What Paul delivered to the Corinthians 
they received, they took as their own. It's not just an historical story out there in libraries for them to read, but Paul is saying it's your story. The story of Christ risen from the grave is your story now to the extent that when you stray from it, like Paul is doing with them, there should be people in your life who can say, hold on a second. I'm looking at your life. I'm hearing your confession that you confess that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and I see you straying from that. It's not just that there's this list of rules and I don't see you honoring this list of rules, but it's that this, you, this is the story in which you stand and you're betraying your own story now. Do you, do you receive truth like that? Are there people in your life who can hold you accountable, not through some special, necessarily through some special accountability group that you form, but people who can speak into your life and say, I'm going to hold you accountable by what you profess to believe because I profess to believe the same thing. And that makes us people in the same story, living in the same reality, the same truth. Do you receive the gospel like that? Like, I receive the gospel not just as a way that I can be saved, but I receive the gospel as a way of saying to others who have received Christ, walk with me in this and speak to me in this. That's what Paul's doing with the Corinthians, this whole letter. I mean, he said some tough things to these people. And he's saying, the grounds that I have to do this is we're talking about the gospel which I delivered to you and which you received from me. We have this relationship and this truth. You stand in it. This is the gospel by which you're being saved. So it, it, it matters. It's easy to think that, that, that I should just be able to have this gospel as a private, personal thing. And nobody, nobody, nobody should be able to challenge me on how I'm living out my faith. But do you understand that if that's where you're starting... You are of first importance in the gospel, not Christ. Christ is of first importance. Where this really kind of digs into the character in our hearts is in the area of conviction. Are we, as our generation, this era in which we live, are we a people who are known for being people of conviction? People who say, I believe things? Or are we a generation, a culture of people who say, we don't want to have anything to do with conviction. I don't want you to be able to hold me accountable for anything that I profess. If you hear me say one thing one day and then say something completely opposite the other day, I want you just to presume that I'm just this liquid jellyfish and I change my mind. Don't hold me to any conviction. This is hard because Christians, we, we do this. In, in front of a world that is watching, what do you believe? We say, well, we, I mean, and can't get a straight answer out of us. Paul is saying, look, the gospel is this. Christ has died and has risen and he's done this for the atonement of your sins and you receive this and you stand in this. So that brings us to the third thing that Paul is showing us here. And that is that the gospel is theological. It's not just a, a story to learn and to be able to repeat. But that there is an implication. There's meaning for those who believe. That my life has been changed by him. I'm not just intellectually assenting to a religion. 
but that what Christ has done changes everything. Changes everything for me. Changes who I am. That he has dealt with my greatest problem. That thing that I walk into the room and everybody knows he's dealt with that. And he said, that's not even your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you are separated spiritually from the maker and lover of your soul. That the God who created you, who gave life to you, identity to you, gave you a name, knows the hairs on your head, knows the number of your days, that God you were made to know and to love for all eternity. And that relationship is fundamentally broken. And here you have a Savior who has died in your place and who has given you his righteousness. The gospel is Christ-centered, it's personal, and because it's Christ-centered and it's personal, it's doctrinal, it's theological. It, it, it has a bearing in, in, in how it affects my life and changes me. If it's centered on what he's done before the Father as an atoning sacrifice for my sin, then the power of the gospel to change me rests in that transaction, not in the transaction between me and Jesus where I, you know, covenant with him to do better. That's liberating. That's liberating. Number four, the gospel is biblical. Um, this is just kind of there in the text that we see it and it's, and it's profound. He says that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day and that these things were in accordance with the scripture. What he's telling us is that this message of the gospel that he brought into Corinth and that he, he, he stood on a chair in the middle of the room and proclaimed, this is Jesus who you crucified, who God has raised from the dead as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. He's not walking in and saying, this is a new religion. He's not even saying, this is the perfect fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism as you know it. He's taking it even further than that. And what he's saying is Christ dying and rising from the grave on your behalf is in accordance with the scripture. And what he means by that being in accordance with the scripture is when man and woman stood in the garden and the serpent was there and they had been tempted and they ate of the fruit and they, and they lied to God and God said, what is this thing that you have done? And they said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And God came in and said, all right, this, you don't understand how broken the world is as a result of this. And he, and he looks at the woman and the man and he says, here are the troubles. They're gonna follow you. Your work is going to be hard. Your labor is going to be hard. Your relationship is going to be hard. Your communication is going to be hard. And then he looks at the serpent and he says, one is going to come from the seed of this woman who is going to crush your head. When Christ died and rose from the grave and conquered death, that's what he did. This is in accordance with the scripture. This is awesome. This is awesome. Fifth, the gospel is historical. Paul labors the point. This one kind of blew my mind thinking about this this week. Uh, he says on the third day he rose. So he's putting it in time. It's not just that he died and he rose, but it's that he died and then three days later he rose from the grave. He appeared to his disciples, to Peter, to the others. He appeared to 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, he says. I love this. What he's saying is, is, I don't want to exaggerate this point. He appeared to 500 people at one time. Some of them aren't with us anymore. Most of them are. Let me just take us even further down this rabbit hole. First Corinthians was written around the year 55 A.D. 
which is about 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's talking in our terms today uh, about an event that took place uh, the year of Desert Storm and Desert Shield when the Exxon Valdez oil tanker crashed and spilled out into the Gulf, when Jamie Lynn Spears was born. Just helping us find this on the timeline here of what's happening, right? But this is amazing. This is amazing. In the year that Robert Redford shot the greatest movie ever made, A River Runs Through It. That's the amount of time we're talking about here that passed. And Paul is saying, um, this isn't a myth or a fable, people. I mean, you can talk to people who were there, who saw this happen. They saw him crucified on a Friday and risen on a Sunday. He appeared to them alive afterward. He was buried in a tomb. It's historical. Eyewitnesses were there. And then lastly, he says that the gospel is, big word, eschatological, which means it's future-focused. It's going somewhere. It's not just a story in time that we believe a past event, and that past event makes us... Uh, feel differently about life than we felt before and then we have a better existence. It's that this is leading us to the place that the gospel promises to bring us in the first place. It's leading us into the presence of the maker and lover of our soul. That we have been bound together with Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection. Paul says it this way. He says, God's grace to me was not in vain. Uh, that, that whether it was I or they, we preach so that you believe. The rest of chapter 15, he's talking about this message that we're proclaiming. It has a future focus. It is doing a work in this world. It is transforming people's lives. That's what it's doing. The gospel is advancing. Christ is leading his people, and he's advancing his gospel through them. And it's about more than the number of converts. It's about eternity. Here... Parenthetically, Paul, maybe you saw this, Paul refers to himself as one who is untimely born. Paul can be a hard man in the way that he writes. He can be a guy who will write a letter to people that he loves and he will say to them things like, you are so foolish. Who has gotten into your head and bewitched you? You know, he'll say things like that. Or he'll go on these diatribes about, about how ridiculous some of the things that they're doing are. And he'll show them to be the fools that they are. Or he'll say some stern things. But here's a place where I think we're catching something of the heart of Paul when he thinks about the gospel. He says, the gospel even came to me. And I'm like one who was untimely born. This language, literally, I wouldn't use this term if it wasn't what... It, it means, because this is a painful term, but it's the word that they would use for a miscarriage. He's describing his birth into the gospel as something close to a miscarriage. And I think what he means by that is he's acknowledging that his conversion story is grotesque. It's glorious, but it's rough. Because when he met Christ, he wasn't like the other disciples. The other disciples were going about their business. They were hearing Jesus teach. They were saying, we want to follow you. Or Jesus was looking at them and saying, you come follow me. You come follow me. 
When he rose from the grave and appeared to his disciples afterward, he was appearing to people who were his friends, who had walked with him through life, who had grieved over him. They'd they'd had fun together. They had learned lessons together. You know, they had walked this journey together. But with Paul, it was different. When Paul met Christ, he wasn't meeting a friend that he missed, who he was grieving. He met the object of his rage. He met the one that he had given his life to persecute and to tear down and to destroy. Paul was on the road to Damascus, sanctioned by religious leaders to go and to find Christians and to bring them to trial and to kill them. When Jesus appeared to him and called him to be a disciple. This is part of his story. This is part of Paul, like John Newton. This is the thing that when he would walk into a room of Christians, they would know You brought a lot of misery and grief to a lot of believers through your persecution of the church. And now you're saying to us that Christ has called you to speak authoritatively in our lives about the power and the wonder of the gospel. And Paul is saying, I am the least worthy man to be called an apostle. My rebirth was grotesque, the circumstances of it. And it was yet at the same time, it was beautiful. And Paul never diminishes this story in any of his letters or his writings. He owns it. He leans into it. He says, yeah, this is a part of it. Why? Because the gospel is Christ-centered and it's personal and it's theological and it's historical and it's biblical, but it's also future-focused. And Paul knows that what Christ is doing in him and what he's doing in this world is bringing glory to his name and is establishing his kingdom forever. Paul is contending. He's saying, I'm not the man that I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am right now. And he didn't consider himself to be a person who was done. He didn't consider himself to be a person who had arrived at the gates of glory already and was just sort of biding his time on earth talking to people about Jesus. He, he considered himself a man who was still in process, who was still unworthy of the gospel and yet is acknowledging, and I just want to challenge us with this, that this takes more courage than self-deprecation. It takes more courage than self-deprecation takes courage to say there is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. I am not what I used to be. It's easy for us to say, don't look at me, I'm just a loser, I'm just a mess, I'm just a disaster of a Christian. Don't expect anything from me. That's part of the lack of conviction. But when Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, he's taking a stand. And he's saying, the Spirit of God is at work in me. I'm not perfect, but I'm also not the same as I was. And that's not because of me, that's not my glory, it's the glory of the Lord. But that's an awesome thing. And it's a challenge for us because it means that we have to receive compliment. We have to receive affirmation and then direct it in our hearts to the one to whom, the one that, that's, that deserves that. Direct that to the Lord and not take it for ourselves and glorify ourselves. So, if the gospel... Is Christ-centered before it's personal? But if it's personal and grounded in the theological reality that Christ died for my sins, if it's true that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an actual event, 
a historical event in accordance with the scripture that is focused on a future glory, a coming Christ, a returning kingdom, then we have to conclude that the power of the gospel to transform my life doesn't rest in me, that I'm passive in all those things. I'm on the receiving end of all these things. So often we think that the point of the gospel is that Jesus wants to make me better. As if by degree, that he wants to make me more righteous than I was yesterday. And what Paul is saying is no, no. What the gospel is telling you is that by the grace of Christ, he has made you righteous. If you believe in him, your sins have been atoned for. He died for the forgiveness of your sins. You are clean in the sight of God. He didn't die to help make me a better man. He died to liberate me from the slavery of trying to be a better man. That I would never, ever pursue righteousness in some better version of me but that I would pursue righteousness in him. The point of the gospel isn't to improve me by degree, but to take me and all my sin and all my guilt and to atone for all my sins so that any good that comes from me is not the means by which the gospel transforms me, but is the fruit of the gospel transforming me that I'm not the place where gospel transformation starts. But that starts with Christ. No Christian, no Christian has ever transformed themselves. Hallelujah. Why does this matter? Because I'm not trying to be the best me that I can be in Christ. If becoming a better me is all that I can hope for, then I am Hopeless, I will never become my own righteousness. I will never become my own righteousness. I will never satisfy my own soul, no matter how hard I work. Look, we have to believe to be saved. Faith is a gift from God, but we have to believe to be saved. have to believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but it will never be the list of things that you believe that saves you. That may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but that would make you of first importance. What saves you is what Christ has done by which you are being saved. Christ died and rose from the grave. If we think that somehow my list of things that I believe and assent to is really what saves me, then I'm going to spiritualize everything, everything, Every intention, every action, and all of it will be false. It's the work of Christ that saves me. Christ's real-time life and death and resurrection on my behalf. These are an historical event. They're attested to by the apostles that he chose. They're in accordance with the scripture. He died for my sin. So the power of the gospel is the power to transform and change my life. I don't need to edit it. He is changing me. The power of the gospel to change us doesn't flow from my commitment to Christ. But it flows from his commitment to me because of a transaction that took place between him and the Father that he would be the atoning sacrifice for my sins. That's the gospel. And that's beautiful. Pray with me. 
Lord, every last one of us in this room is a hardcore legalist uh, in some fashion, in some place in our lives. We are working tirelessly to atone for some part of our lives, to apologize for some feature of our character, to edit some event or moment or habit in our past. Lord, the gospel liberates us to not carry the burden of saving our own souls, of making ourselves clean before you, and yet we gladly so often pick up that burden and carry it. And the reason we do this is because we're proud people who think that we can. But Lord, when we're honest and we look at the way that you draw us into relationship with yourself and we see that what it took was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, stepping out of eternity and into time, taking on flesh in a way that we can't really understand and yet have to acknowledge was humiliating uh, and lived a life of perfect righteousness that we failed to live and died a sinner's death in our place and, and took our sins upon himself, nailing him to the cross and then rising victorious over the grave, over death, which is the wage of sin and paying that wage so that we would never have to pay a wage for our sin ever again. Father, the gospel is glorious. So forgive us for trying to rewrite even that, for trying to edit history and make the gospel somehow about me and my performance or my intellect or my willingness to believe or my genu general sense of spirituality or whatever it is, Lord. Would you liberate us from that and make us to be a people who rest in knowing that we are set free by the gospel, not to try to just be better people, but to rest in the righteousness that you give and that any good that comes from us flows out of that. Uh, Father, thank you for this table that we're coming to now and the way that it reminds us of this truth. It doesn't just remind us, but it screams it in our faces. It engages our senses with it. Uh, Father, thank you for this place. <laughs> thank you that the gospel is true. Thank you for my friends in this room. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we get to come to the Lord's table today. And what a beautiful thing this is to do, to be able to come to this table where it's so simple. It's almost absurdly simple. It's, it's a loaf of bread and, and, and little cups of, of grape juice. Simple. A child's snack. And the Lord says, as a people, come together to this table. And when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember the gospel. Remember history. Remember real historical events in accordance with the scripture. Remember the risen Lord appearing to eyewitnesses who were around back then to testify of what they saw. Remember that Jesus said, this blood is for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul writing in this letter, actually, that we're talking about back in chapter 11, was explaining to these young Christians, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. There's that future focus. 
again, that you're coming to this table to remember something, but also to proclaim, to say, this is my story. There are theological implications at work in my life because of what Christ has done before the Father. This table, because it's a table of remembering and proclaiming, it's a table of conviction, right? It's a table of saying, this is all my hope and peace is Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the rock on which I stand. All my eggs are in this basket. And because that's the nature of communion, if this is not your confession, would ask you not to come, not as a way of being inhospitable, but if you can bear with me on this, as a way of extending an invitation to your heart too. What do you believe? What do you proclaim? If not this, then what? What brings you peace? What sets you right? Is there a maker and lover of your soul who you were made to know and long for that you have a vacuum inside of you that is hungry for this? If you're not a believer in Jesus, but you feel the Lord tugging on your heart this morning and calling you to believe, instead of coming to these tables to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, come talk to me instead. And uh, we'll pray together, or you can talk to Chad back there in the red shirt in the back of the room. Um, For those who do come to this table, let me conclude with this image in light of what we've been talking about. Remember the place that you have at this table. As you think about your life as a Christian and what you do and how you're spending your energy, where you're spending your time and your effort, you're not a busboy at this table. You're not a mater d' escorting other people to this table. You're not a waiter. You're, you're a guest at this table. You're a part of the family that sits around this table, and Christ is here as the head of this, and you are his brothers and his sisters, his friends, his beloved. So you come to this table as people who belong with him at this table, at this feast. This table is meant to leave us hungry. It's meant to awaken in us an appetite, for a future glory, a coming feast. And so it's a good thing that we only get a little because it leaves us with a longing for heaven. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this table. Thank you for the simplicity of it. Thank you for, dare I say, the routine of it. Uh, Lord, it's, it's uh, tempting for us to think that anything that might fall into the category of repetition or routine is, is somehow emptied of meaning. Uh, and yet, Lord, you have made us to be people who, who uh, observe holidays, anniversaries, birthdays, that we, that we come back to, to events and to places and to things that trigger in us uh, memories of the story that we're in. And this table is one of those things that you call us to come to this table and to come again and again and again to remember. And so, Lord, help us to do that. For those of us whose minds and hearts are a million miles away, uh, would you set us at ease this morning, Lord, that you're not depending on us to do the work of closing that distance, but that we can begin to remember even now with a clear conscience uh, who you are and what you've done. Engage us in this, Father. Thank you for this table. Thank you for the liberty that it represents, that we are so uh, unable to be our own righteousness and that you are so sufficient to be our righteousness. And you're offering up your body and your blood 
for us as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Thank you that the gospel is true and that it's not just a fairy tale or, or, or some science fiction book on a shelf, but that this is the truth uh, and that we are, are, are knowing you and walking with you as we come to this table, uh, expecting uh, this table to be replaced by the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory. Bring that day soon. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.